Uh, if you have a confession, you can turn with me to uh, chapter 2, paragraph 3. We uh, will finish off a look at the doctrine of God this morning by a consideration of that third and final paragraph. Does anybody need a confession? No? Um, so I'll just, uh, if you turn to chapter 2, I'll read paragraph 3 and then we'll get into a look at the doctrine of the Trinity. So this is chapter 2, paragraph 3. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. All infinite, <clears throat> without beginning, therefore but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? Amen. Well, in, um, in learning about our God and in studying our God, of course, we land upon the doctrine of the Trinity, the consideration of the fact that in this divine and infinite being there are three subsistences or, or persons. Uh, God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this doctrine of the Trinity is, uh, um, is uh, an essential doctrine of Christianity. It's a non-negotiable. It's, it, it's not something that is on you know, the level of, of tertiary things uh, that, um, that you know, may be de debated within the arena of professing Christendom, uh, but rather it is a most blessed doctrine that must be held to in order for one to be... Uh, uh, to be Christians. So anyone who rejects the doctrine of the Trinity is, of course, outside the bounds of salvation and not, uh, not truly a Christian properly so-called. So an understanding of this doctrine is, is very important, but it's also very blessed. It's a joyful uh, occasion whenever we can come to a, a study, whether it's, whether it's in this context or whether it's hearing it from the pulpit, uh, learning about our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Him. So uh, paragraph 3 of chapter 2 um, treats the doctrine of the Trinity, having beforehand dealt with the oneness of God and the glory of God uh, being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable and all those glorious perfections of His in paragraph 1, uh, treating his, uh, his independence in paragraph 2 and uh, the, the doctrine of God relative to creation. Uh, now it turns to the doctrine uh, of the Trinity. And in doing that sort of pattern, in following after that sort of pattern, considering God and His perfections, uh, and then God and His independence, and then God as triune, the confession here, and even the confessions of the 17th century before this one, aren't doing anything new. Um, in the early church, that same pattern was followed when articulating doctrine. For example, in the 7th century, this was uh, John of Damascus. Um, he's basically, or I guess you could say the confession in one sense is, is almost following after this same pattern, but expanding upon it in the same order. We therefore both know and confess that God is without beginning, without end, eternal and everlasting, uncreate, unchangeable, invariable, simple, uncompound, incorporeal, invisible, impalpable, uncircumscribed, infinite, 
incognizable, uh, indefinable, incomprehensible, good, just, maker of all things created, almighty, all-ruling, all-surveying, of all overseer, sovereign judge. And that God is one, that is to say, one essence, and that he is known and has his being in three subsistences, in Father, I say, and Son, and Holy Spirit. And that the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in all respects, except in that of not being begotten, that of being begotten, and that of procession. So if you, if you can recall how our confession moves, um, this is an inherited movement or articulation of the doctrine of God that they have gained from centuries prior to themselves. So they're following a very, um, a very trusted and proved pattern of, of speaking of the doctrine of God in our confession of faith. And one thing we ought to notice here that's very interesting, and it's only present here as compared to the other, uh, uh, to the other two confessions, is that paragraph 3 fittingly moves from the one God to the three persons three times. You know, it's the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not that it's coincidence. I imagine that was deliberate. But you see the movement of the one to the three, and then back to the one, back to the three, and then that again a third time in this divine and infinite being. So it speaks of the oneness of God, reiterating from paragraph uh, one, um, the, the language of the oneness of God. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. It then speaks of three subsistences. It then moves back to the one saying each uh, of one substance, power, and eternity. And then it moves to the three articulating uh, the, the processions or the eternal relations of origin. Then it moves back to the one and then, and then back to the three again. So it's, a, it's an interesting structure to the paragraph. Very Trinitarian in treating the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, before getting into, just continuing some introduction here, before getting into the, the stuff of the paragraph itself and the doctrine of the Trinity, just a note with regards to the language used here. Our confession reads in the first clause, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration use the word persons. Um, the, uh, and there's a reason that the Baptists here are using subsistences. It's not... It's, it's a different term than persons. They're theologically synonymous. So there's not a theological difference between the confessions that came before them. Uh, but there is, a, there is a propriety to the use of subsistences that makes it a better term than persons. Uh, persons, when used properly, is theologically synonymous. But Subsistences is a more precise term, better fitted to represent the undergirding theology. Uh, Richard Muller notes that it is a, uh, quote, more technical and philosophically adequate term than person for indicating the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. If we think about this for a second, just with our own, you know, modern day language regarding the use of persons, when we say th the three persons of the Trinity, the language of persons comes with a lot of modern, you know, language baggage. Um, you know, we think of human people, we think of persons um, in our own human context. And so often, you know, perhaps when some people, um, some people who maybe aren't Christian or uh, are new to Christianity hear the word persons, they kind of, you know, they're importing their own understanding of, of the word persons to 
to God. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Baptists use the word subsistences here, again, because it's more adequate for, uh, for terming and for speaking of Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. Uh, subsistences, just very quickly, maybe not, sim- well, yeah, just very quickly and simply, uh, means modes of existing proper to substances. So the one God, how does the one God eternally exist? The one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We could say that God simply is Father eternally begetting the Son who with the Father eternally breathes forth the Spirit. That is the one uh, and only living and true God. Um, Interestingly, last point of introduction here, the, the confession of faith here, our Baptist confession of faith, is considerably larger in paragraph 3 than the Savoy and the Westminster Confession. It's twice as large as the Presbyterian statement of faith. Um, uh, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith has 55 words in this paragraph. The Savoy Declaration has 74, and ours has 109. Now, we have the advantage of time, but the Baptists, of course, being, being the latest of the three confessions, but the Baptists added some language here um, to, uh, to enrich this doctrine of, uh, of the Trinity. It's the same doctrine as our predecessors, but they added language to, um, uh, to speak well to the doctrine. So... Moving on then, we're just going to try and look at six things very, very simply this morning. And these are the same six things that uh, were in the newsletter that, um, that was uh, published uh, the, the last month there, the, uh, or the last two months. So it's just following after the doctrine of the Trinity as simply set forth there. So the first thing we confess, and these are six things that we sort of, not sort of, six things that we do confess when we confess the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, And the first thing is that confessing the Trinity does not entail a confession of tritheism. That would be a belief in, or that is the belief in three gods. So when we believe that in this divine, uh, when we confess in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is not tritheism. We are monotheists. We are Trinitarian uh, monotheists. That's what the Bible sets forth. In God identifying himself, he identifies himself as the one and only living and true God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So confessing the Trinity does not entail a confession of tritheism. We do not believe in three gods. And so, the, you know, for example, not for example, but uh, the confession clearly states at the outset of the doctrine of God in chapter 2, paragraph 1, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God. So the confession has already asserted monotheism in its declaration of God in its declaration of the doctrine of God. There is one only living and true God. And both the Old and New Testaments, of course, assert this. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, hero Israel. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul reiterates, knowing Deuteronomy very well, he reiterates that same language in that particular context there, our God is one. Uh, and then, in fact, at the end of that, in, cha- uh, in he, he asserts the oneness of God in verse 4, reasserts it in verse 6, but then articulates the Trinity in that same verse. And so the, the, the Bible clearly sets forth that there is one one and only living and true God, 
uh, and that that one God eternally exists in three persons or subsistences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the confession, having already asserted in paragraph one, asserts in paragraph two that our Lord is but one only living and true God, um, and then clearly upholds later in this divine and infinite being, here in paragraph three, the fact of monotheism. So God is one. As has already been touched upon previously, He is one in such a way that there could be no other, that oneness of singularity. Uh, he is one in His simplicity. And of course, there are no rival deities in the universe. As we already said, the oneness of God asserts that oneness of, of singularity, that He is one in such a magnificent and glorious way that there could be no other uh, other than the one and only living and true God. And so the assertion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not an assertion um, of three gods, but rather of that divine and infinite being eternally existing as uh, in those three subsistences. It's as we work through this, and hopefully you, have, you we, we should have maybe reasserted this at the beginning. The doctrine of the Trinity um, it is a high doctrine that is, of course, as God is, incomprehensible. There is a high mystery to this, to this doctrine. God, remember, can be known, but he cannot be comprehended. We cannot encapsulate or contain God within our finite human contemplations. The finite cannot contain the infinite, though the infinite has condescended to us in his revelation to reveal himself to us. And in, uh, in, uh, with our renewed Christian hearts, by the power of the Spirit, we prayerfully consider the word, reflect upon doctrine, and we can know the God who created us, the God who sustains us, and the God who has redeemed us by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so it's going to be, you know, these, we, we stretch our minds and we ought to stretch our minds when we study the doctrine of God because the, the blessed subject, the blessed object of our worship, uh, you know, demands our minds to be, to be stretched because he is so glorious. He is so magnificent. He is so uh, perfect in his, uh, in his being and in his, of course, condescension to us. Uh, what one man has sort of worded it this way with regards to incomprehensibility and the, the knowledge of the Trinity. He said something like, if we could wrap our minds around God such that we could fully contain him, we might congratulate ourselves for our cleverness, but we would never worship. Um, because God is incomprehensible, he is by virtue of being God incomprehensible, and he is in that worthy of worship. If we could contain him within the encapsulating of our human contemplations, um, we would either be God or he would be like one of us. And we don't want either of those things. We want God to be God and us to be his people, um, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So getting back to this, we confess the Trinity and in so doing, we do not, um, that confession does not entail a confession of tritheism. Remember, there are three, there are three iterations here uh, or three reiterations of the oneness of God um, of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided and therefore but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. So this paragraph, while... Uh, opening up the doctrine of the Trinity and speaking of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit continuously uh, refrains the reality that there is one and only living and true God. So, 
with this, this confession that we are not confessing three gods, we realize that there is no plurality in essence. There are not three essences. So when we speak of the, the Father uh, um, having the whole divine essence, the Son having the whole divine essence, and the Spirit having the whole divine essence, it is just that, the singular whole divine essence. There are not three essences, the essence of the Father, the essence of the Son, and the essence of the Spirit somehow comprising um, the, uh, a, uh, you know, a threefold divine monarchy of, uh, of three gods. There is one essence, no plurality in essence. The ground of the difference, as we'll see in a number of moments, the ground of the difference between the persons is not essential or substantial or with regards to being, but with regards to their mode of subsistence or simply the persons, their um, eternal relations of origin. Um, there cannot be plurality when there is unity of substance. So we do not confess three gods, we confess one God in three persons, which then brings us to a very important second point. In confessing that this one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are not confessing a contradiction or a paradox. Um, Those who are opposed to our Trinitarianism, those who are simply opposed to to biblical Christianity, uh, will charge us with... Uh, confessing a contradiction uh, or a paradox here because we're saying that God is one and that God is three. Uh, for example, if you ever speak to Jehovah's Witnesses at, at any length, they will do that, that very thing. Uh, they will charge us with tritheism or they'll charge us with confessing a contradiction. How can God be one and how can God be three? Well, it would be a contradiction uh, or it would be a paradox if we confess that God is one in a particular way and three in that same way. You see, so, you know, if we say that God is one in one way, but also three in that exact same way, then that, of course, is a contradiction. That is, that is um, you know, that's logical madness. But that's not what we're saying. The confession itself, in this divine and infinite being, that's one particular thing, this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. That that one divine and infinite being exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're dealing with uh, essential matters, and we're dealing with matters concerning the persons. So our God is one in one way, according to being, essence, or substance, and three in another way, according to subsistence, person, or relations of origin. Um, and hopefully that's, you know, that's fairly simple to understand. You know, this, you know, you, you know we can't say, um, we, we can't confess because it would be a contradiction that God is one in being and that God is also three in being. That there is the one being God, but also three beings, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that's not what Christian Trinitarian, uh, the confession of Christian Trinitarianism says. It says that there is one divine and infinite being who eternally exists Uh, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So our God is one in one way, according to being, and three in another way, according to persons. There is one being God, 
God and three subsistences, persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not a being separate from the Son. The Father and Son are not beings separate from the Holy Spirit. And these three also are not one person or separate manifestations of the one God. Very simply, uh, God is this divine and infinite being who eternally exists again as Father, Word or Son, and Holy Spirit. If there are questions, I'm sorry I'm drinking my coffee so much, I should leave it alone for a minute. Every third sentence I'm taking a sip of my coffee, so I apologize. Um, but afterwards, if there are any, any questions, uh, certainly bring those up. Again, we stretch our minds when we study the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and, you know, there is a measure of simplicity that the teacher, <laughs> simplicity, uh, a measure of simplicity that the teacher uh, ought to exercise in, in trying to communicate the doctrine of the Trinity, but it's often uh, difficult to escape some of the language that we've retained as inheritors of a blessed theology over the centuries, because that language has been used uh, in order to, to defend, in order to uphold, and in order to, to, to communicate as best we can the doctrine of the Trinity in the, the, uh, you know, in the face of heresy, in the face of error, uh, in the face of bad theology, and also with the heavy yet blessed task of simply trying to encourage the people of God in the doctrine of God. Uh, moving on to point three then. So we have, we do not confess tritheism. We have, we are not confessing a contradiction. And now we have thirdly, in confessing the Trinity, we are not confessing that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit collectively comprise God, such that we believe that the Father is one-third God, the Son is one-third God, and the Trinity is one-third God. That's not the doctrine uh, of the Trinity. Again, uh, the confession reads, of one substance, power, and eternity. So the three persons are of one substance. They don't uh, collectively comprise that divine and infinite being, but rather they each are, or they are, of one substance, power, and eternity. And notice the next clause, each having the whole divine essence. So the Father has the whole divine essence, the Son has the whole divine essence, and the Spirit has the whole divine essence. The next clause says, yet the essence undivided. You see this important repetition uh, of the language, and I'm going to repeat the repetition as I speak uh, this morning. There's the constant assertion of the one, the constant assertion of the three, and there's also the constant assertion that the divine essence is undivided and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have that whole divine essence undivided. And so we are not confessing in Trinitarianism that Father, Son, and Spirit collectively comprise God. The, you know, the Father isn't God minus the Son and Spirit. The Son isn't God minus the Father and the Spirit, etc. Um, the, the, the Son and the Spirit considered together, or the, the, the Holy Spirit considered uh, alone, has the whole divine essence in as much as considering the entirety of the Trinity. Um, so again, we do, not, we do not cut up the Trinity, we do not divide the Trinity um, into parts. The whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided, not to be divided in nature and being. The, the confession has already asserted the indivisibility of the divine essence in paragraph 1 when it spoke concerning the fact that God is without body parts, 
and passions. So already in paragraph one, the confession has prepared us based upon the witness of the scriptures to realize that when we get to paragraph three and we consider Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is not comprised of parts, but rather the, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit have the whole divine essence and the essence undivided. And on this topic, it's important to perhaps touch upon something that has been occurring um, not occurring, but something that is prevalent in, in, our, in our age, um, growing over the last number of decades, and it's something called uh, social Trinitarianism. That simply, simply means, uh, simply, and it has various sort of manifestations. There's another one for you, Isaac. But it has, um, it has certain, uh, basically it says that the unity of God is not seen in the one essence, but in the communal harmony of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that, these, so that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are separate wills, separate centers of consciousness, which simply have a divine harmony amongst the three, and that's wherein we should see the unity of God. But historically and biblically and confessionally speaking, the unity of God is seen in substantial unity, or that... They are all, the three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity. So that the unity of the persons, the so-called, if we would ever use that word, the harmony of the persons, is simply seen in that they are of one substance, power, and eternity. And so the Godhead is not comprised of, uh, you know, constituted of, one-third, 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 Father, Son, and Spirit. But again... There is one divine and infinite being that eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided, and that essence not to be divided in nature and being. Um, fourthly, confessing the Trinity entails distinguishing the persons or subsistences according to their eternal relations of origin. That simply means what the confession brings forth here in the center, after it has said it, yet after it has stated, yet the essence undivided. Notice the language here. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and then the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. So that is the language of, of what's been called eternal relations of origin. When we distinguish the persons of uh, uh, the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that distinguishing does not come at the level of a divided essence. That distinguishing does not come at the level of their individual works because they do not work individually, but the external works of God are one. But rather, the distinguishing of the persons is simply in their relations one to the other. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And this language speaks with the propriety of biblical revelation um, in a number of places. And one of the best places to see this language is the Gospel of John that Pastor Butler is preaching through. Um, that language, uh, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the relations of the persons one to each other, all of this is brought out in the Gospel of John. And in fact, you can see 
Uh, if the confession of faith, and I think most of them do, have some of those uh, proof texts or scriptural references, you'll see John's work there listed um, at least three times and his epistle listed once uh, here. Um, and so this doctrine of the relations or the eternal relations of origin simply speak to the fact that the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from them both. When we speak of that language, because the language begotten immediately tends to, you know, perhaps make, make us cringe a little bit because, wait a minute, you know, doesn't that, don't we confess that Christ is God and that, you know, he wasn't brought forth in time, he wasn't begotten in sort of the natural uh, sense of the term or in the human sense of the term? Well, of course, we, you know, we don't import our, um, our understanding of begetting in the human sphere or in the creature sphere and, you know, uh, and predicate that sort of thing of the eternal Son of God. Eternal begottenness um, is, is very important, is a very important doctrine um, in the history of Christianity, being biblical and confessional, and it is very vital for retaining the fact that the Son is distinguished from the Father and the Father from the Son. And think about the language for a moment. Um, Jesus Christ, or the Son of God, is eternally begotten of the Father. What does that mean? It means that that's outside of time and not with respect to time. There was no time when the Son was not. Contra Arius, who said there was a time when the, the Son was not, that was his mantra. The Son has always been. In the beginning was the Word, or Son, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So eternal uh, begottenness is simply that, that the Father eternally, without time, eternally begets the Son. And it's not that the Father eternal, had you know, eternally begot the Son in eternity past, as if He doesn't, being eternal, beget Him no longer. It is eternal begottenness. The Father eternally uh, um, begets the Son. And that's the distinguishing factor concerning the Father and the Son, and the same with the Spirit. It is a, an eternal procession or an eternal breathing forth from the Father and the Son, such that those are the only distinguishing factors between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's very often that, um, uh, very often in our own day, even within the Reformed camp, that um, theologians will take the biblical revelation concerning the, the works of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in redemptive history and read those things back into the, the, divine, uh, the divine persons. For example, we see the language, um, we see the language here, the Holy Spirit, uh, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. It's a very important clause because the distinguishing of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doesn't have to do with their works in the economy of redemption as we read them in the scriptures because those works are one. 
Uh, very often in the scriptures we read you know, something concerning the Father creating, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit um, regenerating, for example. And these are, these are things that the Bible speaks with respect to each of these persons to shine the light on that particular person in the collective, not the collective, but in the one work of God externally. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work as one and in time and in history or in the revelation of redemptive history we often read though of one work being ascribed to one in particular but all of that to come back to this we are not to see in the differences of the Godhead anything other than the fact that the Father eternally begets the Son and Father and Son eternally breathe forth Spirit hopefully that's clear because we, all, we also have a we also have another you know uh, another error prevalent in, in, in our time and, and that'll come up um, in point five here but uh, with regards to the the inequality or the inferiority or the subordination or eternal submission of the son to the father and part of part of that error um, sees something other than eternal begottenness or you know that the fact that the father eternally begets the son something other than that as distinguishing the son from the father or adding to that something that distinguishes the son from the father for example um, one of the things that they will say those who advocate the fact that the son is eternally subordinate to the father which again is heresy um, but they will say that sonship entails inferiority because the father is always superior over a son um, and that this obtains not only amongst humanity, but in some sort of exalted way uh, amongst the persons of the Trinity. Um, and so when we, when we are saying here that confessing the Trinity entails distinguishing the persons only according to these relations, that precludes or, or jettisons from, from our contemplations of the persons of God anything other than those distinguishing factors. Again, that the Father eternally begets the Son, that He is unbegotten, but eternally begets the Son, and that Spirit is uh, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. A lot to consider, a lot to think about, and, uh, and a lot to, uh, to wrap our minds around. Not fully, though, because we cannot comprehend. Uh, we do not read the, the economy that is the external works uh, of God as revealed in the scriptures in time and in history uh, the redemptive acts of the three persons back into the theology um, and thereby distinguish the persons according to what are perce perceived as separate works but rather we only distinguish according to those uh, relations of origin. Fifthly in confessing the Trinity we acknowledge the equality of the three persons. So Father, Son and Holy Spirit being of one substance, power, and eternity, and each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided, must then have equality one with the other. The Son and the Spirit are not inferior to the Father. The Spirit is not inferior to Father and Son, but they are all equal. They are consubstantial. You've heard that word in Pastor Butler's preaching, of one substance. They are co-eternal. They are all eternal and they are co-equal co they are uh, one with the other equal to one another again being of one substance there is no hierarchy 
among the persons of the Trinity. Uh, the language uh, of the confession asserts that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, are of one substance, power, and eternity, and that all are infinite and without beginning. Um, because God is one, He cannot be divided in nature or being. If there were division in nature or being, perhaps then, of course, there could be inequality, but being uh, that not being the case and God being one substance eternally existing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no, uh, there is no universe wherein the Son is inferior to the Father in power and authority. And this is the language that's actually used by those who advocate the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father, um, that the Father is prime in power and authority um, over the Son. And I, I mean, just, just in considering our doctrine of God, His substantial unity and the three persons being of one, one substance, power and eternity. In fact, people who confess that very clause still assert that there is some measure of eternal inferiority of the Son to the Father. Uh, and that's madness, because if God is of one substance then there is equality. If God is of one power, then there is equality. Because it's one power. We do not have in uh, Father, uh, in, we do not have the power of the Father as distinguished from the power of the Son, as both then distinguished from the power of the Spirit, but rather one power. The language of the Athanasian Creed is this, the Father is eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal, and yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. That speaks to the power of God, and it also speaks to the works of God. We do not have three working, but uh, one working, the three according to their distinct modes of subsistence or according to person. So continuing, and yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. Um, going back to our very first point that we do not confess tritheism. This is Augustine. There is one Son of God and one Spirit of both, and these, instead of being without number, are not three gods, for not only is their subsistence one and the same, but their operations by means of this subsistence is also one and the same, while they have a separate manifestation in the material creation. And so there is equality among the persons. There is no scale or hierarchy among the three persons, but are all of one substance, power, and eternity. Some good quotes here on... So, you know, again, and we, we need to guard ourselves or guard our minds or, or protect ourselves in our confession of uh, Trinitarian theology and our confession of the, the, the unmitigated deity of the Son of God. These are some quotes that are against this these modern notions of subordinationism or the eternal submission of the Son. This is Leo Maximus. The Godhead, which is one in the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, excludes all notion of inequality. For the eternity of the Trinity has nothing temporal, nothing dissimilar in nature. Its will is one, its substance is identical, its power equal, 
and yet there are not three gods, but one God. And this is, this is an important confession too, as we confess all of these things that we're talking about. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we've just spoken, they don't have three powers. They don't also have three wills, but rather their will is one. Recognize the language that Leo just used. Its will, the divine, uh, the Godhead, its will is one. Its substance identical, its power equal, and yet there are not three gods but one God. Ambrose, it cannot please the Father if the Son be judged inferior rather than equal to his Father. Uh, Chrysostom, very simply, speaking of Christ, he is in no way inferior to the Father. Basil of Caesarea, ever be spoken among us with boldness, that famous dogma of the fathers, which builds up the churches in the sound doctrine, wherein the Son is confessed to be of one substance with the Father, and the Holy Ghost is ranked and worshipped as of equal honor. And then lastly, Spurgeon, any doctrine which hath not the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as equal persons in one undivided essence, we cast aside as being unsound. For we are sure that such doctrines must be derogatory to God's glory. And so in confessing the Trinity, we confess no inequality, but rather they are of one substance, power, and eternity. They are consubstantial, co-eternal, and co-equal, one with each other. And then lastly... Sixthly, and lastly, in learning about and confessing our triune God, we are not engaged in a dispassionate academic exercise. And hopefully that's not what it has seemed like this morning. There's a lot of language that we use. There are a lot of words. And they're used with, proprietary, uh, with propriety. Um, you know, the, the history of Christianity has seen that there is the necessary use of extra-biblical words phrases and clauses in order to defend what is in the Bible and what God declares in his word. In fact, at the Council of Nicaea, in just the course of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, um, the Orthodox, that, that is those who were properly Christian, Athanasius, Alexander of Alexandria, and, and all the good guys, quickly realized and actually noticed that the Athanasian party we're, we're elbow bumping and kind of snickering when, when, um, biblical for, when, when only the Bible was being cited word for word and verbatim. We, we subscribe to sola scriptura and rightly so, but when heretics and errorists and those opposed to biblical Christianity employ the Bible in such a way where they're simply proof texting and saying, aha, aha, the, the Orthodox, the, the uh, defenders of the faith, need to use, built upon or, or uh, upon the foundation of the scriptures, use words and phrases and logical consequences um, and phrases that are outside of the Bible in order to defend what's in it so that those who are seeking to distort the scriptures um, are, are shown for the fools that they are. We can think of the word uh, Trinity, for example. Trinity is not in the Bible, and that yet we use the term, rightly so and necessarily, to defend the fact that there is uh, declared by the Scriptures one and only living and true God that eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, 
all of that to come back to this. All, this, all these words, all these clauses, all these phrases aren't to be used in such a way where we're detached from the cheer and the joy and the blessedness that a study of God brings to the Christian heart. These things are to work as um, work in, in concert with one another. The, uh, you know, uh, it, um, a, a wholesome uh, intellectual uh, approach to the Bible. We're called to understand and know God. It's declared to us that eternal life is seen in the knowledge of God and in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Um, and so in the exercise of knowing our God, um, in, in growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in our lower sojourn on this earth as Christians, we are to understand and know our God We are to learn about confessing our triune God, but we never do that detached from the joy and the cheer that the doctrine of God is to bring to the Christian heart. Um, And these things work uh, in uh, in blessed unison and ought to really burst forth in, in worship on the Lord's Day as we come in and we come into the house of God uh, on that day of God to worship him. We ought to be filled with the knowledge of God and we ought to be filled with the blessed uh, cheer uh, in the knowledge of him. The confession closes on this point. The confession closes, notice with this language here, um, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. Isn't that a blessed way to close the chapter on the doctrine of God? Again, not a, not a dry, cold speculation, not a, not a detached academic exercise, but a study and the knowledge of God such that we can have communion with him and such that we can have that blessed, comfortable dependence on him. Um, Spurgeon wrote this, and... Um, it, this is some of this language may be familiar to you, but there's a portion of this that often isn't included in this quote regarding a, the study of God, um, and it has to do with the comfort that the knowledge of God brings to Christians. And you, you know, Spurgeon is speaking about the knowledge of God as being the chief school, the chief science, the chief study um, in in God's universe. You know. We, we can lawfully study biology, chemistry, physics, uh, botany, all, all manner of things, but the most blessed study is the study of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, he preached, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated." I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And that, 
that ought to be our, our blessed Christian posture as we study our God, when we study our God, and we pray that it's often, and we, when we come in to worship our great God on the Lord's Day, that we can know Him, the one and only living and true God, that we can know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that we can know Jesus Christ, the Son of God who assumed our humanity without sin for our redemption and our recovery. What a blessed thing that we can do that, that we can know our, uh, our Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in studying doctrine. We thank you for the doctrine of God. We rejoice in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can know you, that you have caused us to come forth by grace from darkness to light in Christ Jesus, uh, that we've been brought from deadness to life, that we can know you, that we can by your spirit and prayerfully uh, understand you, that we can know um, these blessed truths concerning you and that we can uh, reflect upon with great joy the fact that you are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of your glorious perfections, uh, that you, Lord God, eternally exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that we would know you more and more each and every day. And as we come in to this church on the Lord's Day, we pray that you would bless us morning and evening with the knowledge of you, uh, with blessed reflections and sweet contemplations of our blessed God and of Jesus Christ and uh, of our blessed uh, gospel that uh, we've been brought forth by amazing grace through the doing and dying and rising again of Jesus Christ our Savior. So do go with us into worship. Help us to know you more and to rejoice in you and give you that worship that is due your most high and precious name. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.